With that being said, we have a really special Sunday uh, in store today. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, but today we have a very good friend with us, John Draghi. Uh, John is, an, uh, you guys can give a round of applause for him. We'll do it again here in a minute, but it's hard to hold back. Uh, John is, is just a great friend of many of the pastors here and staff. He's one of the leaders within our network. We're part of a larger network called Collegiate Church Network. And John is somebody who's just been extremely influential in that. He, he was here in Bowling Green as a student years ago. And then we sent him out to plant a church at Missouri. And he has been there for a long time, reaching the campus there. And, uh, and this guy just loves the Lord and he loves the Word of God. And I think I shared this before, but just to remind you of how how uh, special of a guy he is. Uh, about uh, a year ago, we were trying to get John to speak at our fall retreat, which we just came back from yesterday. And uh, we've been trying for a couple years to get him, but there was always weddings or something going on where he couldn't do it. And so we set our date, and we asked him if he could do it, and he said yes. And he's so excited because obviously this being the church that he was involved with as a college student to come do it. And so we've been planning on it for a long time. Well, in February, uh, as many of you have heard and we've, we've shared, John uh, got diagnosed with brain cancer, which obviously when you get that type of diagnosis, it's, you know, it's a game changer. It changes everything for you. And, uh, and I remember um, just not even being sure whether he'd be able to come or what it would look like. And I remember talking to John shortly after he got that diagnosis. And one of the first things he said to me was, I will be in BG at the end of September if I can do anything about it. If I can walk, if I can move, I will be there because I'm so excited to share with your church. And that's just the type of guy he is. Uh, he loves you, even if he doesn't know you. He loves the Lord. And uh, he's just a faithful man that's been so influential in so many of our lives. So I can't wait for you to hear what he has to share. I hope that you're kind of just sitting on the words that he's about to share and, and soaking in the wisdom that he has. So with that being said, uh, let's give a big warm H2O welcome to John Draghi. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Let's go. All right. Maybe Brian should just keep on talking. I like that, huh? Hey, I'm here under crazy circumstances. Um, never did I think that I would write a message called Terminal. Uh, yet here I am. I am a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. And at this point, I'm a cancer patient. Can you imagine it? By the way, I'm supposed to mention that Akron, that's our H2O church there in Akron, has a special venue. They're watching on this special venue, as well as all of our online uh, participants, so we welcome you. But here I am, uh, a terminal cancer patient. It was uh, in November of last year, I started getting these headaches. Uh, my doctor thought they were migraines, gave me some special medicine. They kind of went away, but I still had these strange things in my vision, and then the first week of February, I had the headache of my life, and it just would not go away. This headache was just, I, I, I'm that guy that works when he's sick. It doesn't matter how sick I am, I just keep on working, but this thing laid me out. And so after about a week of going to the doctor a couple times, getting a shot, the doctor said, hey, let's do an MRI. We do the MRI, it shows there's a brain tumor about the size of my fist, in there, and um, the next day we see a brain surgeon, um, scheduled brain surgery a few days later, and on February 20th, the day after the brain surgery, the doctor comes in and says, it's glioblastoma. It's the worst kind of cancer uh, 
brain cancer you can have. And it's really aggressive. And I'm like, wow, we were crushed. So when Amy and I got the news that I had the, um, the tumor, we had a big family meeting in our bedroom with our, our kids. And we FaceTimed in our oldest son who lives in Colorado. And we cried, even though we didn't know what was coming. And then right after the diagnosis, we were all in the hospital room. And um, we had a family meeting, and we cried, and we talked about it. And we've had a handful of family meetings about what's going on. Yet even as I've been wrestling with it and interacting with lots and lots of friends, people seem to be asking the question, why does this guy have cancer? Why did John get brain cancer? And maybe we even ask God, why? Why? We ask that hard question. I remember once I was with this student who had cerebral palsy. He was a freshman at Mizzou. He's on the wheelchair basketball team. And he said, we went and had coffee in the union. He says, John, I'm struggling with my faith. Why do I have cerebral palsy? And I'd watched him with his one good arm and his not good arm try to push uphill with his wheelchair. And I remember his question. I can... I can, I can tell you the table we were sitting at. And I said, I don't know why you have cerebral palsy. But I do know this. Jesus loves you. Number two, Jesus has a plan for your life. And number three, Jesus is going to give you strength to fight and face whatever you got to do. And it was hard. Yet here I am years later with a cancer diagnosis. But the real question, more than why do I have it, and I'm not even sure the Lord could explain it in all of his beautiful mystery, the real issue is what am I going to do with my life? And I think it's the same question that I probably would have had pre-cancer. At this point, I am not ready or desiring to retire, and I don't want to settle down, and I'm not ready to give up. In fact, we are going to do everything in the world to fight this cancer. Because we trust God, not because we don't trust God. I'm even doing this thing called the keto diet where I don't eat very many carbs because some people think that if I can starve the cancer of glucose, maybe it won't grow. Well, it just so happens that all the yummiest things in the world are made of carbohydrates. <laughs> now, I get as much bacon as I want and avocados and all kinds of other yummy proteins and vegetables, but I don't get fruit. I don't get donuts, I don't get cookies, or ice cream, or pizza, or pasta, or tortilla chips, or french fries. <laughs> or am I trying to make you sorry for me? Well, maybe I am, I don't know, gosh. What's worse, the keto or the cancer? I mean, it, <laughs> gosh, it's just brutal. Yet, I'm going to share with you in a little bit what God's doing even with the keto to try to get my attention and to pull me closer to him. I do know this, that I am going to do everything to prepare my wife for my departure. Statistically, we know that this glioblastoma has a, a median life expectancy of 20 months. On Friday, we hit seven. I don't know how long I get. Uh, people like me seem to live a little longer because... Everything's going really, really, really well for me. 
Um, my body doesn't even seem to feel the side effects of chemo or radiation. I'm just keeping on going. At the end of July, I ran a half Ironman down in Columbus, um, Ironman, Ohio. I've been running triathlons for the last a uh, long, long time. And so it was a gift from God to keep on going. I also know that I'm going to do everything I can to prepare my kids for my departure. We're going to go on these special dad trips and all kinds of special things. And lastly, I've got to do everything to prepare my friends and my family for my departure, even though we don't know whether I'm going to go or not. In May, I got to preach at a prison, and I, I preached at that prison again this past Wednesday. And in May, it was amazing. So the, the guy that introduced me said, hey, this is John. He's got terminal brain cancer, and there's 75, 80 inmates in this room. And um, I was teaching them about memorizing scripture of all things, and I'm going to talk about that today. Yet, right near the end of my sermon, this inmate in the front row raises his hand, and we've been interactive the whole time I was asking the group questions. And he says, John, Pastor John, can we pray for you? Sure. So he stands up right there and he says, oh, everybody, come on up. So all 75 inmates came right down front and they circled around me and, and I was safe. And God had them put their hands on me and they prayed. It's really interesting. Two Pentecostal guys in the group came up to me afterwards and said, John, you're healed. And I go, I hope you're right. I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that I trust whatever he wants to do, he can do. If he wants to heal me, that's great. If he says, I'm coming home, that's fine. Here's what I was thinking that we would do today as I'm talking about terminal, is I want to share with you my relationship with Jesus and what's been going on. But before I jump into a handful of these scriptures, let me, um, let me just pray. Father, I know for me, I'm super happy that I get to be here with these friends and that you have a plan for all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of our trials, not just my cancer. And I ask you that this story that I share about my relationship with you and how I'm doing terminal would speak some hope and encouragement to my friends in the room who are fighting their storms, their battles, their sufferings their trials. God, meet us here in a powerful way this morning. Open our ears to hear what you want to say. Cut through all the noise, the beautiful things that I share. God, I ask you, my friends would remember in the, the things that were worthless that I say, I pray they'd forget. Thank you again for the minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can go with me, Back to 1981. <laughs> For some of us, we're like, oh my gosh, my mom and dad weren't even married in 1981. And um, my mom and dad were. I was a 15-year-old, and my shop teacher had a massive impact on my life. He was my wrestling coach, and Mr. King introduced me to Jesus. I knew about Jesus. I'd heard all about Jesus, but I didn't have him in my life. Again, I could tell you about him, but just because we know about God doesn't mean we know God. And on, so on December 7th, 1981, I asked Jesus to come into my life, and he started changing things slowly but surely. 
And by the time I was a junior, that was my freshman year, by the time I was a junior, I was starting to read the Bible and I was starting to talk to people about Jesus. And I was starting to learn how to have a little prayer life. At that point, my prayer life, um, I had the bottom bunk. My brother had moved out to the other room. And I had this list, this piece of paper that was like underneath the, the top bunk. And every night I remember reading that, that prayer list. And there were hundreds of names on it. In fact, I just found that old prayer list from when I was a senior in high school. Yet, these two things started to get my attention. One was learning how to pray, which at some level is the most basic thing for a human. And then in college, when I was a freshman here at BG, it was about both reading the Word of God and memorizing it. And not just reading a little bit, but reading a lot. And of all the things I've ever done that have helped me grow as a Christian, it's these two that have impacted me more than anything else. Again, what is it? Going on prayer walks and memorizing massive amounts of Scripture. Those have changed me, not just because I wanted to be a pastor, but because I wanted to know God. And I'll tell you what's happened right now. So here I am, 53 years old, cancer guy. I'm the cancer guy. Oh my gosh. And you know what's holding me up? It's the prayer walks and it's the word of God because in those two venues, God has become real to me. I don't have a Sunday school God. And in fact, personally, I can't even stand religiousness. And really religious people bother me. Because I, I can, I, you know, all of us have kind of a fake meter that we can feel, and not to be judgmental, but I'm like, I don't want that. I want the reality of God. And I know for me, that's what I've experienced. And my, our hope is that when you would think that if a guy like me, after 38 years of following Jesus passionately, again, I can't say those first couple years were super passionate, but I can definitely say from 1983 to now, I have passionately followed Jesus. And the thing I want to share with you, it is worth it especially now that I'm on my way to the valley of the shadow of death, or at least statistically it says I am. So what I want to do is I want to walk through these scriptures that have been speaking to me so loudly, especially this last seven months. Look at the first one. It's up on the screen. Psalm 910. I memorized it when I was a sophomore. I was 20. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So what was happening starting my freshman year in college, I would read the Proverbs every day. Whatever day of the week, uh, month it was, I'd read that proverb. So today you read Proverbs 23 because it's September 23rd. Whatever day it was. And if I missed a day, so what? You can't, you can't cry over spilled milk. Just go read that one. And then simultaneously, I was reading, trying to read the New Testament through every, every semester, and I was reading the Psalms every day. So there's 150 psalms. So there's two ways I read the psalms. You can either, I read Psalm 1, add 30. Psalm 31, add 30. Psalm 61, add 30. Psalm 91, add 30. Psalm 121. And I read, I read the psalms over and over and over and over again. I read them hundreds of times. 
and they started to click. And every time that I would have just a, a, one that really was making sense, I'd memorize it. Any, any, any sermon that I listened to, great verse, I'd memorize it. Anything I read in a quiet time, I'd memorize it. And because my brain worked on memorizing and I was that smart guy who could remember lots of stuff, I did a lot. Yet this is what happened. I got to know him. Those who know your name, those who know God, and how do you get to know God? By building a relationship that takes time and time and time and communication and communication. What will, that, what will we do? We learn to trust him. Time with God helps us trust him. And then we come to that conclusion, just like the psalmist, for you, O oh Lord, will never forsake those who seek you. You will not forsake those who seek you. That doesn't mean that he's going to heal me. Because last time I checked, everybody, everybody dies. So here I am, terminal, and we don't know when, but we're all terminal. But what are we going to do? Are we going to build this kind of relationship with God? So the group that I was part of here, the, this church, there was leaders and men and women who talked about going on a prayer walk and learning to pray. And so I did, even though I didn't know how to do it. In fact, I lived in Cole Hall my junior and senior year. I would walk out the front doors down Crim Street, and there's a school at the end of that street, and I would go at night three, four times a week, and I would pray behind that school for hours. My big prayer was, God, make me the most humble man ever. I preached my first sermons in Prout Chapel with nobody there. That's what we do, us preachers. Can't get a congregation? Well, then imagine one, right? <laughs> but those prayer walks shaped me. They totally shaped me. And I've been asking people recently, because you know what, I don't want to just tell my story, and the story's not about me, the story's about God, and the story's about Him inviting you. I've been asking people, have you ever been on a prayer walk? And when people feel really safe with me that I'm not going to judge them, because I don't want to judge them, I just want to get them to pray. And almost everybody tells me, no, John, I've never been on a prayer walk. I've never, I've never ever gone on a prayer walk. And I say, hey, can I, can I show you, can I teach you what a prayer walk looks like? And almost everybody says, yes. I was preaching at a businessman's group about a month ago, and all these 70-year-old men are scribbling down what it looks like to go on a prayer walk, and I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe they'll go. Here's the first thing your prayer walk could look like. I want you to go out, talk to God, and remember, prayer is back and forth. I want you to tell him everything that you're thankful for. Everything that you're thankful for. Make a massive list. And some people really struggle to figure out what they're thankful for. How about everything? The donuts? Guess you see what's on my mind, huh? <laughs> All of our friends, our mentors, experiences. I know for me, I've got this massive piece of paper. It's called my better than I deserve list, and it has all the things I'm thankful for. I've gotten to travel the world. I've got, even as a pastor, I've got money in the bank. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got four kids. And we write down these things, and we tell God those. That's the first thing. But you don't have to even go in this order. 
Most of the time, the first thing I do is, is the second thing. You tell God everything that you're worried about, your anxieties. I didn't want to have to tell you, but I'm the president of the Insecure Pastors Association. And so because I've been this president, in fact, when they asked me to be president, I said, I can't do that. I'm too afraid. <laughs> and all the men in, in the group said, John, you can do this. And so I've learned to go to God with everything that I'm worried about. Are you a people pleaser? 74% of us are. I don't know what you other 26% do, but my gosh. Tell God about it. Your nice walk with God has to be about what's going on in our life. So let's go be thankful. That's the first thing you could do. And I've got four of these. Second thing is tell God everything that you're anxious about. Third thing, I want you to just ask him, what do you want me to do? Prayer is back and forth. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to think? And then, shh, be quiet. Because he'll probably say something. Do not worry about what you'll say, for at the proper time, I will give you words to say. He gives us words. He gives us ideas. I remember my son Josh, when he was 18, said, Dad, how do you hear God? Go pray, Josh. Dad, how do you hear? Go pray. One of the things that I've been thinking about recently is we don't need another stinking workshop about evangelism. We don't need another workshop about prayer. We need to go talk to people about God, and we need to go pray. John, that seems hard. Go do it. Go out on the prayer trail. Don't know what to do. Go do it, and you'll learn how to listen. You're going to have to learn how to listen. First thing, tell every God you're thank everything you're thankful for. Tell him what you're anxious about. Tell him, ask him, what do you want me to do? And then maybe the fourth thing is you can tell God, ask him for everything that you, that you, you see our needs. You know, your friend next door lost his job. Can you get this guy a job? This guy, he's on drugs. He needs help. This friend of mine, Susie, she needs Jesus. And those, those things, bring all those petitions to God. That's what your prayer walk can look like. Those four things. What am I thankful for? What am I anxious about? What do you want me to do? And then this is what I want you to do, God. And then, if you're feeling safe and risky, I want you to go to fifth, the fifth thing. Why don't we ask God, what do you think about me? That's your prayer. I'm positive. I've counseled and pastored with, with hundreds and hundreds of people, and almost everybody I meet is anxious and worried and discouraged about something, but it really has to do about what, 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 do, you, what do you think about me? And listen to the voice of God when he says, you are my beloved and I am yours. You listen to the Lord where he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you know this love? He's crazy for you and me. And those who go chase him get to know him. And then I think he helps me even with this crazy trust. Like in Job 13, 15, look at this verse, crazy verse. I memorized it a long time ago. Even though you slay me, yet will I trust you. No, I memorized it long before the cancer. And it was wonderful and theoretical at that point. Can you scream it? 
And I'll tell you this, here's my experience right now. Yes, I trust you, but I'm afraid. Yes, I trust you, but I've got some anger. Yes, I trust you. And you know what? I think the Lord invites us to come in and wrestle. Wrestle with him. In fact, what's been really interesting is I've been wondering on those grief stages if I did I do anger because sometimes some of my anger has been coming out sideways and I'm grumpy or I'm short. Unfortunately, I do that with my best friend, my wife, and I'm like, maybe I need to go investigate my anger. So what the biggest clue was is I'm angry about keto. Now, I have all the self-control in the world. I'm that weird guy. I can make your food, serve it to you, and not, not eat it. Um, that chocolate donut that's sitting next to my dad, man, it, I could have eaten that. So this anger about keto seems to be an invitation from the Lord to go be angry and then let the Lord mess with me. This verse isn't on the sheet, but Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, if you're taking notes, you can scribble this down. I want you to go read it. This is the path of Jesus. In, in Hebrews 5, listen to what it says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries to the God who could hear him. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Then in verse 8 it says, Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. If that's the pathway for Jesus, that's the pathway for you and me. How will we learn? By crying out. Nice little antiseptic prayers. What's that worth? About antiseptic. What about going and wrestling with him, and then when we come out the other side, we have intimacy with God. And that's what we want, so that we can even say, even though he's slain me, yet will I trust him. 20, the, February 20th, I got diagnosed. February 21st, I got out of bed, and Psalm 16.5 came right to my mind. I memorized Psalm 16 in college, changed my life. Um, I, I just, it was a powerful psalm. And it's been a powerful psalm. I've preached it a lot of times through the years because the first verse, verse in, in Psalm uh, 16.1 is, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And that's, that's where I'm at. Keep me safe. Freaking out here. Psalm 16.5. You, God, have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. One of my friends said, Early on, a couple days into the diagnosis, he says, you are not in the grasp of cancer. You are in the grasp of Jesus. Who's in charge of the freaking cancer? God is. Did he cause it? I don't know. Why do you have it? I don't know. The answer is too big for this little brain. All I know is I can trust him. And he's assigned me my portion in my cup. Portion and cup, indicative of our circumstances. Remember Jesus in the garden. If there's any way for this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. We've had that wrestling match. Probably going to have it again. And will we be thankful? So that potentially Isaiah 26.3, this next scripture, is yours and mine. 
Do you know how many times in the middle of the night when I'm anxious about something with church or I'm wondering about what somebody thinks about me or I'm freaking out about money, the stupid things we worry about, you will keep in perfect peace him whose heart is steadfast because he trusts in thee. You will keep in perfect peace him whose heart is steadfast because he trusts in thee. Got that King James coming out here. I must have memorized it back then. Who knows how it got in there? That King James guy got me. But you want perfect peace? I do. I want that. And I've just gone after it. And, and what is it? Will my heart be steadfast? And I, will I trust him? The greatest thing that God is doing in your life and mine is getting us to trust him more and more and more with whatever's going on. I don't know your money struggle. I don't know that girlfriend struggle or lack of a girlfriend struggle. Those are both hard, aren't they? Or the disease you face. You know what's happened to me even with every time I hear a cancer story, and I've heard a lot in the last seven months, more than I've ever, than I'd ever heard in my whole life, because I'm one of the cancer guys now. And everybody needs hope and hold on. And not just hold on to everything's going to be better. Well, who knows that? Man, if I, every time I hear pancreatic cancer, I go, oh my gosh, oh, oh my God. I mean, I hurt down here. I don't even know what it feels like, but I'm like, ah, what do we need? Perfect peace. Let's trust him. When I was in college, Psalm 16:8 was my verse. I was that weird guy who put 16 colon 8 everywhere. Every notebook, I made little signs, stuck them in the room. And nobody even really knew what it meant except for me and a couple of my friends. And Psalm 16.8 became my game. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I've set the Lord continually before me. And I did that through memorizing a whole lot. And I did that through seeking him on the prayer trail. And now it's paying off in spades. And when I, when I would go seek him, and I'd go out to that place, that place, I'm going there this afternoon. It's called The Rock. Funny enough, 2000, I start a church. We call it The Rock. I didn't even remember that the place that I used to go pray, I called The Rock. And when I would go to The Rock, and I went there two years ago. We had a pastor's conference here in Bowling Green, and um, everybody, all the other guys went out to a restaurant after the meetings, and I went to The Rock. And the first thing I did when I got to the rock, and I'm going to, first thing I'm going to do when I go to the rock this afternoon is I'm going to look at three, Philippians 3.10. It's burned in my soul. This is my life verse. Can I explain to you Philippians 3.10? He says, Paul says, I want to know Christ. What do you want to know? I want to know God. If there is a God. He's the most important figure in the entire universe and he wants to be personal and intimate with me and he proved it by sending the son. The idea of the incarnation, the, the idea that God would become a man, the most beautiful theological idea ever that God, the creator of the cosmos, decides to put on human clothes so that he could be with you and me. Oh, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection, oh, that's Awesome. To me, I'm in love with winning. And um, power is resurrection. That sounds like winning. But then this next phrase, oh my gosh, 
You want that? Fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So on Tuesday, the 19th of February, I had the surgery. The surgery went amazing. That next night on the 20th, I went home with the crappy diagnosis. That Thursday, the 21st, I went out on a four-mile prayer walk, and everybody thinks I'm crazy. I've always been training for these races, so I was in great shape. I'm like, so what? I've got staples in my head. I'm going on a walk. Put a hat on. You'll be all right. And when Jesus and I were talking about sharing in his sufferings, I was at a deeper level of trying to grasp that than I ever had been in my whole life. And then the latter phrase, we can look at it in a nice theoretical way and go, boy, that's nice, becoming like him in his death. That's the game. Will you come? Let's go suffer together. What was interesting is when I was fighting the cancer in the spring and Amy and I went to MD Anderson, I go to MD Anderson, the best cancer hospital in the world. It was just enormously challenging because I was trying to figure out how do we, how do we suffer well? And I know he's wanting to change me from the inside out. That he's been, and he's doing that with you and me. It's not even just my story. My story is just a little more intense right now than, than everybody else's, but, but maybe not. Let me show you the next verse, and then I'm going to share with you what was going on. Pre-cancer, the last three years, maybe five years, the Lord and many of my friends have been trying to get me to slow down. You see, I'm a 100 miles an hour guy, 100 miles an hour guy, all the time, everywhere, intense, fast, go. I had tons of jobs. I was pastoring a church of a couple hundred. I was the national LT director. I directed our biggest LT. I was a regional director of our churches. I was on the board of our churches. I own three houses. I have four kids. And I run Ironmans on the side. And God's saying, come and slow down. Some friends had asked me to consider doing a sabbatical. And I said, those are for weak people. Yet God's trying to get me to slow down. So during that time, before the cancer... Christmas of 18, coming into New Year's, I decided I would memorize 2 Corinthians 4 and um, memorized a lot of it on the cruise. And some of the verses I'd memorized already, but look at 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. This, and this is pre-cancer. This is not even knowing. And, and it was, I see it as the beauty of God getting me ready but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Let's just stop for a second. What's the treasure? There's a metaphor going on. It's not real complicated. Treasure is Jesus. Jar of clay, that's you and me. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show, and then he gives us the reason. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Why are you and me anything? It's because God lives in us. 
And then, then he goes into, we are hard-pressed on every side. Yeah. Crushed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Then that next line, for we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be displayed in our mortal body. My gosh, that's what's going on. Then later on in that chapter, right, it says, for these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Is cancer light and momentary? It doesn't feel that way. But in the big scheme of eternity, even glioblastoma is light and momentary. And I memorized, God's a genius. I ain't that smart. And he met me there. And I was telling people pre the month before the cancer diagnosis that I'm having the greatest time with God. It's like I'm in the middle of a revival. He's so sweet. Let me share with you this last verse, then I'll wrap it up. So when I was in college, I was a crazy guy memorizing scripture, wanted to be a pastor, didn't really know that that was going to happen. God was shaping and molding me through these prayer walks and through memorizing. Amy and I get married in May of 89, and then I decide I'm going to memorize the book of Philippians right when we, um, we got married. And it, it was amazing. Um, I, I'm, I'm very thankful to the Lord that I didn't get any car accidents while I was driving all over Northwest Ohio. My job was I was a sales rep, and I've got these little verse cards on the steering wheel, and I don't know how I didn't get in any wrecks. But I memorized Philippians. And for all these years now, I've taught it, I don't know how many times, uh, if I could teach on the book of Philippians, uh, any chance I'd get, I'm like, yeah, I got it. But listen to this section, and what I want to do is I'm going to try to give it to you the way I think Paul said it. I don't know whether he dictated this letter or not, but I think he put his blood all over the page in his, in his guts. Look what it says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. He's in prison, you know that? And the guy's just thinking about standing firm. Whether by life or by death. Me too. For to me, this is 121, the key key verses. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you and you and you and you and you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your joy and your progress in the faith. Why? So that through my being with you again, your joy and hope in Jesus Christ will overflow on account of me. Then 27, whatever happens, church, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you contend as one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And then the next one, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been appointed to you not only to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for him. I added 28, 28, 29, and 30. 
What's God doing? Well, with me, I'm trying to fight this terminal deal. One thing I'm doing is I've got johndrage.com. That's this blog that my son and I are working on. I'm writing a ton. We do these videos. It's intense. If you want to read about it, johndrage.com. Not real complicated. But I wonder with God and you. The thing I'm trying to sell is that you and I would go deeper with him and that we would do that by learning to go on a prayer walk and learning and getting after the word of God. I'm not interested in us feeling bad about not praying. That's a waste of time. Just go pray. Get out there. If it's 20 minutes, great. If you can do an hour, great. If it's 10 minutes, we'll take that. That's a good start. And then I think when the storm comes, we'll be ready when the storm comes because the storm's coming. Would you pray with me?